Hello and welcome to Prescription Advocacy. I'm Arielle Troster. And I'm Neely Kaplan-Merce. And I'm Birgitta Maigba. So today we are um, honored to be joined by Birgit, who is an ICU nurse in Durham. And it's been, it's March 15th. So it's, it's been a full year of dealing with the COVID pandemic. And we wanted to speak to somebody who's been uh, dealing with life and death and um, the struggles of uh, the pandemic from a nursing perspective and from an intensive care perspective. So, Birgit, tell us about what this last year has been like for you. Thank you very much. Um, First of all, it has been tough. Um, You know, um, I've been an ICU nurse for the past um, three years now. And this past year, I would say, has been the toughest. When COVID hit, we weren't too sure in terms of um, PPE and, you know, when donning and doffing all the new changes and protocols we had to get updated with every single day. Um, And then prior to this, a lot of nurses have been burnt out and burnout is a reality for a lot of us. And we often work short, even before COVID. So you can imagine when COVID hits, we're pretty much, let's say, unprepared. Um, So yeah, it's been really exhausting going to work, not knowing what exactly to expect. We are constantly, um, you know, in the middle of trauma, um, grief, death, pretty much every single shift. So all of that is really having a toll on nurses. Um, a lot of times we barely have breaks. We are, we are taking more than we normally would. Um, usually with very sick patients in, the, in critical care, it's usually a one-to-one, so one nurse to one pre, uh, patient. Unfortunately, we've been experiencing really heavy assignments because we can only um, make do with what what we have. So I've walked into a shift several times and looking at the roster, we have a lot of times seven nurses short, five nurses, 10 nurses short. So (laughs) we never know what to expect. So yes, nurses are burnt out. I'm really worried about the mental health of myself and all my colleagues now and even after COVID. And you said that even before the pandemic started, sometimes there was an issue in terms of how many nurses would be there or or what control you'd have over your work environment. So describe to people who have never been in a hospital what it is that you would do before COVID on a, on a day-to-day basis and then how that changed when the pandemic started. Oh, yes. So before COVID, I would get to the unit, look on the board. So we usually have our assignments on the board um, and then see who I'm I'm assigned to and get report from the outgoing nurse. So usually the night nurse. I mostly work day shifts. Um, And then I would get report and start my shift. 
um, a lot of times, you know, we are either um, assigned patients that are intubated, critically ill, or the patients that are post, uh, post-op, so post-surgical patients, which is monitoring. So some of those patients, we can, they can double up. So we can have two of those kind of patients, one nurse looking after two of those kind of patients. But patients on life-saving medications, intubated on um, a breathing machine, a lot of times, one nurse has to look after that kind of patient. And sometimes two nurses will be looking after such patient. Um, so prior to COVID, we pretty much ha- had staffing issues. So I work as an agency nurse, meaning I work with, um, I'm not employed with any facility per se. So I work with an external agency, um, which supplies um, nurses to the hospitals when they're short staffed. So I go into the hospital to fill in for shortages. Um, so yeah, it's so I'm speaking from an agency nurse perspective, but in the end, I work as an ICU nurse. Um, so ICU nurses are specially trained. So in addition to obtaining your um, BSCN in nursing, you get to uh, you get to obtain additional training and be certified as a critical care nurse. Um, not a lot of people want to do that, obviously. And um, so when we're when the hospital um, is short, ICU nurses we're really short because it's hard to pull nurses from the floors to come to ICU, all because they're not trained. So um, right now, we've seen a lot of nurses. Um, coming from the floors just to support because not enough ICU nurses would take at least four to eight months to be trained to be an ICU nurse. So the, I yeah. imagine. Oh, sorry. I, I was just going to say that I'm. I imagine that before COVID, you would have um, spent a lot of time. I like as a medical trainee, I I really didn't get to spend very much time in an ICU, maybe a week mm-hmm. or two, but. Um, but the thing that struck me was that most of the what I spent my time doing is speaking to family members and supporting family members as the the patient was or was not necessarily um, conscious, but you know the family was at the bedside. So now, are you the only ones there? I mean, the families are they allowed to be there? Are you the like the last person that's going to hold these patients' hands? Is there a lot of times? Yes. Um, so just like you said, prior to COVID, family members would be at the bedside, um, depending on how many they are. So, and a lot of times there are exceptions as to how many they allow at the bedside. So if a patient is, is dying, they would get, you know, exceptions to have as many family members just to say their last goodbyes. At the peak of COVID, um, we, we didn't see that. So we had to be the people saying, you know, those final goodbyes, and a lot of times we we used um, not really Zoom called team team apps, different kinds of video calls that we tried to stream. A lot of times they don't even work. It's it's such a hassle trying to navigate through that and connecting with families and trying to figure out what time works for the family, the patient, for you because you also have other. Uh, patients and other nurses, you're covering your patients when they're on breaks, if they have one. So it is a lot more complicated. Um, 
yeah um but more recently i'm starting to see one or two family members being allowed to the uh unit on but these were also for on exceptional um basis they have to get approval um from the social worker and then the unit manager and the doctor so it's a long process for them and but i i have seen more recently uh, just i would say within the last month or two um, some family members come in and it's usually one person at a time and for one hour a day. And it's that is reassessed on a daily basis. Wow. So, I mean, I can't even imagine the toll that this takes on families of someone who is dying. Uh, what kind of emotional toll has it taken on you to have to facilitate this emotional labor and take on that that uh that extra role to help try to connect family members who are who can't be there it is it is really emotionally draining first of all you're you're trying to be that person you know to to facilitate somehow those final moments and memories um prior to covid i remember um having a patient who was dying and and the fa- everybody, like the family members were crying there. And I said, you know, how about just try to reflect on the good times? And 10 minutes later, they were all laughing and and they tried to share good memories and started sharing the funny, funny moments. Um, but we don't see that anymore, right? It's more if the call is not, you can't even be on the phone at the same time because you have to be with the patient. So you have to, you and your colleagues just pretty much, supporting in any way you can so that as that is really stressful and it it takes a toll on on me personally I sometimes I come home and I'm and I'm just sad and down and you know I I can't even really express or describe the feeling a lot of times I I, there's this kind of apathy for a day or two and I can't really figure it out (laughs) so yeah, it is very draining. What about your um, your friends? Do they understand? Like I find sometimes as a family doctor, and for sure when I was a medical student, and, and I mean, I don't work in a hospital because I found it really draining anyway, but um, there was just this sort of surreal feeling that, you know, you'd, you'd be at somebody's bedside. Um, I've been at my own patient's bedsides when they've died at home, and there's just this surreal feeling that you, you know that your friends have no idea what it is that you're doing. Do, do you feel like your your friends um, or your family understand what you've been having to deal with over the last no, year? No, It takes an ICU nurse to understand another ICU mm-hmm. nurse's plight, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, even more mm-hmm. recently, um, my husband only started saying, oh my goodness, I'm only starting to gain some awareness as to what you go through at work. Um, It's hard. Like if a lot of times you just want to vent with somebody and there's no point talking to someone that really doesn't understand you, right? (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I have one or two colleagues who like, we went through nursing school together and we became ICU nurses together and we've been supportive to each other that way. Um, but again, it's just preventing to each other. It's hard to lift each other up in that regard as well. 
because sometimes you also want someone that's not in, you know, in that profession to be able to understand you and hopefully spring some hopeful conversations out of it. So yes, it's challenging. <laughs> it really is. So something uh, we've been talking a lot on this podcast about is how problematic it is when governments sort of glorify healthcare heroes, <laughs> but not actually do the things to make them safe. And I'm, I'm interested in hearing from you in the position that you're in now, what would you make you feel safer and more appreciated at work? And what changes would you like to see so that ICU nurses could do the job without being completely burned out and also take care of patients better? Well, thank you for that question. I I actually say, like, why call us heroes if we don't even have the support to, I don't know, to, you know, complete our day-to-day work? We are, I would like to see more staff. I would like to see more support. We don't have to, you know, going to work and being the one to constantly say this assignment is unsafe is a lot of stress. It's a lot of work. Sometimes I get so tired of saying this assignment is unsafe. I'm not speaking for myself. I'm speaking for the patient. This is someone's loved one. And honestly though, they even ha- the 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 charge nurses, they they're like, I'm so sorry. There's nothing I can do about this. Like there's literally nothing they can do a lot of times because they're only working with the number of staff they have. And unfortunately, it is what it is. So I'd like to see more staff, at least. And I'd like to see more mental health support, you know, more strategies in place for nurses. Some of us do fall through the cracks, like myself, an agency nurse. I'm not affiliated with any hospital. Who looks after me? What resources can I, you know, tap from? None. Zero. Absolutely none. So all nurses should have access to some form of mental health support um, and and irrespective of the hospital they work for, because not everyone has a hospital that they're directly working for. And there's nothing wrong with paying nurses more either. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It sounds like really you're you're in a very precarious position because you because you aren't because you aren't as you said working just for one hospital so you're not you don't have that um, kind of institutional support behind no. you. Do you have if you were to get sick? Do you have benefits through your agency or would you be totally on totally your own? On my own. So I had to isolate oh, yeah. in March last year when. This all just started, it's a year now. And I was exposed to a patient that later found out was positive. And I, I was home for two weeks without pay. With not even the pay, without even support for from, you know, anybody, right? Like you said, precarious. I don't have that, you know, pool of um, colleagues. I could say we work together and, you know, we work at the same facility. I don't have that. And I, I isolated again in October when I actually had COVID myself and I was totally on my own. Yeah. Wow. Wow. 
that's, I mean, we know, I, I don't know the statistics everywhere. I know that in Ottawa, I think it was 15% of uh, COVID positive cases were healthcare workers. Um, and we know that it's disproportionately uh, women and women of color who, um, who have um, gotten uh, sick um, as healthcare workers, as nurses, like we've seen that globally, right? Um, so it's, it's, a, it's an issue in our province and it's an issue across our country and kind of internationally. And, and, and has, I know, I no, no, Neely, I know it's not a surprise to you because you're a family doctor who doesn't get sick leave, but I'll just say as a lay person, as a community activist, I'm actually shocked that ICU nurses in your position don't have paid sick leave, especially when you were exposed to COVID and got sick at work. That's just appalling. Just can put that out there. <laughs> paid sick leave. Yeah. We need it. Universal for everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. So Bridget, what's it like for you when you see people walking down the street without a mask or you see people in, in cafes and restaurants and gyms and stuff like that? It's infuriating, actually. I a lot of times I just shake my head and and, and I and I tweet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I really do. I always say I wish these people could, you know, take a trip to ICU and actually see that every single person we're looking after in this 30-bed unit, you're all COVID positive. A lot of times, just that one trip will, you know, hopefully help them in terms of adhering to public health advice. Um, yeah. I, I hope people are wearing their masks and I hope people are social physical distancing and following the rules. That's the only way we'll, we'll be able to get out of this. And thanks to the vaccination, um, hopefully people actually get the needles in them. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you been immunized yet? Oh my goodness. I had to also fight for that. Right. As an agency nurse. Right. Um, I got my first shot, um, a week ago now. Yeah. I got my first shot. So second shot in April, fingers crossed. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, as a family doctor, most family doctors haven't been immunized yet. And, um, I got a shot, but I had to sign a, um, a paper saying that I would be willing to go into retirement homes, which I did to immunize seniors without myself being immunized. And, uh, it does, it does leave you feeling like you're, like you're kind of disposable, right? Like it, cause if, if I got sick, then I, yeah, like I'm, I'm sort really? of the same as you. I don't have, I don't have benefits. I just have to close up my office and my patients would have to find a new doctor. And, um, and oh, really? yeah, yeah. And, and we, and because we don't work in a hospital, so we're kind of, you know, just, um, and, and we were just told that, uh, I was supposed to get my second dose of the vaccine. And then we were told that we now have to wait until June. And, um, yeah, it's really, it's, it's very, it's very hard to, to see your colleagues who work in the hospital treated differently from, from doctors who don't happen to have the privilege of, of being there. So for you, I mean, like you're in the hospital, you're in, you are up close and personal with COVID pa patients and yet you still have to fight for a vaccine. It's absolutely outrageous. Yeah, I did not know that you, 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 you know, family doctors not in the hospital or being treated that way. That's yeah, no, 
where, where because they were not on anybody's list, you know? So, yeah. And, and we saw lots of people who don't even have face-to-face patient care getting their vaccines, which was very frustrating. You know, mm-hmm. ultimately, I mean, we all need the vaccine, but it's just, it's been so inequitable. That's right. So my son last night, he's 17 and he was crying at our dinner table because he was saying, you know, mom, it's not fair. My friends are all doing things and going about life. And, uh, you know, because you're a doctor and because, you know, we're all being careful, we, we haven't done anything in a year, you know, other than basically going to work and, um, my kids going to school and, um, and yeah, I don't know. What, what do you think? How, how are you going to, um, how are you going to get through the the rest of this pandemic intact? Cause we need you intact, right? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm actually pleading with the minister of immigration to, prioritize family sponsorship so my husband can join me here in Canada. Um, it's hard. It's so hard. It, I don't know. Uh, where where, where is husband, he now? Yeah. Oh, he, he's in Nigeria. So I've oh um, put in an application to sponsor him for over a year. Um, and it's there are no updates. Wow. wow. You know, he told us to submit all the documentations, which I have. And I'm just waiting. We're wow. just waiting now. And no no one's talking to us. I'm so um, sorry to hear that. I uh, I work with a group. I volunteer with a group that sponsors um, refugees to come here to Ottawa. And we have a family that we've been trying to bring here for four years. It's incredibly difficult. And I'm so sorry to hear. Do you have any family or connections here? Yeah, I do have connections. I have, you know, I have. Um, extended family, and I also have a, my amazing church group. Um, I'm quite involved at my local church. We we connect um, via video calls, and we've kept in touch. But still, it's not the same, right? Like, yeah, at least I have that support, which I'm really grateful for. Mm-hmm. But I just want this to be, you know, to the process to be done because we've invested so much time, um, money, and in, into this, and it's, it's, I don't think it's fair. It's been a really long journey for us. Um, I, and people always say, why so long? It's because I applied before a couple of years ago, 2013 to be precise. And because I didn't have all the funds to hire a lawyer at that time, I made a lot of mistakes. And even with the doc, a child involved, I was still, he was still refused. I had to start all over again after finishing school and starting work. So it's been a journey. I'm just hopeful they finally grant his application and he can come here. Wow. That is, that's like an extra, an extra layer of stress. And, you know, it's the sort of thing that like you hear, you, you know, you hear about a person's story and then there's just, you're not just resilient because you're, you're there working pretty much unsupported. You're also struggling to try to get your husband to be able to come and join you in Canada. And um, yeah, holy crow. That's just, what is, what is um, his experience right now in terms of COVID in Nigeria? 
Um, you know, back in Nigeria, I, 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 he thinks the cases are underreported because um, not everybody's able to afford being tested. You know, it's healthcare is not free over there, so they're pretty much she's pretty much staying at home, and it's really tough being at home alone. At least I have my daughter here, but he literally has nobody, and he, his mom passed away in the middle of all of this, and we couldn't even be there to support him. Um, so yeah. I, it's challenging. We just try to take one day at a time. <laughs> and because I work in ICU, I see a lot. I, I still have something to be grateful for. I'm like, okay, it's not that bad, but you know, it can be better. Absolutely. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us and, and giving us a, a bit of a glimpse of of what your life is like. And I'm sure, I mean, we've only just scratched the surface. Um, <laughs> for Like we need, we need more mental health supports for the trauma of, of what this pandemic has, has been like for everybody who's uh, working nonstop trying to take care of people. And, um, and, um, and I really hope that one day you know, we'll have a healthcare system that will value the work that you do and, and take care of you as much as you're providing that amazing care to patients. And in the meantime, yeah, thank you so much. And in the meantime, we'll keep speaking to people like you. We'll keep advocating uh, for paid sick days, uh, for mental health supports for healthcare workers. And thank you for telling us also for family reunification. And we really hope Mm -hmm. your husband can come join us in Canada soon. Thank you so much. Take care, and um, and we'll probably uh, we'll probably circle around and speak to you again. But hopefully, if we speak to you in like a year, we're going to have uh, happier stories to tell each other. I am so hopeful. Thank yeah. you so much. Talking is therapy for me. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. Take care. Take care. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye. You've been listening to Prescription Advocacy, co-hosted by Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth and Ariel Troster, produced by Alana Stewart. You can visit us on Twitter at rxadvocacy or on our website at rxadvocacy.ca, where you'll find links to the people that we spoke with and the information that they provided and also a full list of credits. Thank you for listening. Thank you.